Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today I'm very excited to be talking with my friend and former colleague at Bowdoin College, the historian Professor Paige Herlinger. And today we're going to be talking about a really interesting incident that happened in 1918, on January 19th. And I'm just going to read a little section from Alexandra Kollontai's 1926 autobiography of a sexually emancipated communist woman, where she specifically sort of mentions what happened. And what she says specifically is this, a special fury gripped the religious followers of the old regime when on my own authority, and then she parenthetically says, the cabinet later criticized me for this action, I transformed the famous Alexander Nevsky Monastery into a home for war invalids. The monks resisted, and a shooting fray ensued. The press again raised a loud hue and cry against me. The church organized street demonstrations against my action and also pronounced anathema against me. So I think the very first thing that I would love to ask you about is what does it mean to have the church pronounce an anathema against you? And also, if you could give us a little bit of context for why Colin Tai did what she did and why she got into so much trouble and angered so many people in Russia at this particular moment in history. Okay, sure. Well, and first of all, thank you for having me here um, to talk about this. This is a, a very dramatic story, but it's also, I think, a really interesting one to unpack. Um, so anathema. Anathema, as it sounds, is is definitely not a good thing from a religious perspective, but the idea is, is pretty straightforward, that someone has committed such a grave sin that the church wants to kind of punish them by excluding them from the church community until they repent. And repentance is always possible, but until that time that one agrees to repent, um, one is excluded from all the rights of the church, and including attending liturgy, for example. But, right, also, but also marriage and christening. And all the rights of the church, yeah. You're not going to get a priest to show up and, and help you do anything. So, so it's bad. Yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty bad. And it can be very dramatic. It can be very public. It can be read out, out loud by priests throughout churches and, and you know, because the other point of anathema is not just to punish the one who has sinned, but also to warn other faithful Orthodox away from that person so that puts more, you know, so that they're not being tempted by them or or somehow compromised by them, but also so that puts more pressure on the faithful to repent. Right. And, and at this particular moment in time, the Russian Orthodox Church also pronounced anathema against all Bolsheviks. Is that right? Yes. So this was, this was an opportunity for the church to really make it clear that they did not accept the Bolsheviks' point of view on God, which was to be militantly anti-God and atheist. Yeah. Right. And they associated the Bolsheviks with the Antichrist. Is that correct? Yeah. So another piece of context here to understand is is just how binary sort of the thinking was within, within Orthodoxy, that you were either for Christ in how you lived your life, or you were Antichrist, and you couldn't really be in between. So the Bolsheviks definitely fell on the Antichrist side. Right. And clearly seizing a monastery, even if you were doing so to help war invalids, was 
going to yeah. put yourself on the wrong side of the turf. Yeah. So to give Colin Ty a little credit, you know, there, there was a big need for helping these war veterans. It had been a long war, a very bloody war, and resources were very stretched. And there, the, there had been an armistice concluded in mid-December, so shortly before, and they had a wave of soldiers coming back, many of whom had supported the Bolsheviks when they took power in, in October of 1917. So they needed to do right by them and find a place for them to go and to be, and to be taken care of. So she saw this, you know, big empty uh, facility and she's like, well, let's do it. It's right in the middle of the city, very convenient with a lot of resources. And she thought, what could be, you know, what could be wrong with helping these defenders of our, of, of our country? You know, how can anybody argue with that? Right. And she was the commissar of social welfare. It was her job. It was her job. It was her job to take care of people. What she didn't get, and this is where we can start to be a little critical of her, is that this was a very sacred place to Orthodox. And so to have it requisitioned in this way by this young and still very fragile state was a very daring move, whether she knew it or not, because the faithful were not going to let this go easily. Why um, Why is the monastery so sacred? Well, there are these places that are set aside from the secular world where that, that are a place for um, spiritual growth and, and prayer and community. And this, and, and this was an icons, um, revered icons. And this was one of those places and it had been for forever. So it was a place that was set aside from the secular world. So no matter how secular the Bolsheviks were themselves, I think most people had assumed that, you know, this kind of space would still be allowed to exist. Un, undisturbed. Right. And there were there were monks living there. Yeah, and there were there were clergy and, and there were people who would come in and out and you know it was but it was it is literally set apart. There's a huge cemetery there where mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know, were their final resting place. So it's a, a place of, of peace and contemplation and spiritual spiritual communion. Right. And so the what I understand is that she wanted to take over the monastery. Because not only was it rooms to put the war invalids, but they also had food and candles and some sorts of resources. And that many of the faithful lay people also came to the defense of the monastery. So in addition to the monks that resisted, there were people who came out to, to resist. Yes. Really quickly, there was a huge gathering with the help of local clergy. There, there was a, a response to this, to this requisitioning. And it was helped along by the patriarch, the newly elected patriarch, Tichon, who had pronounced anathema against the Bolsheviks and who not with that, not only wanted to make it clear that the Bolshevik actions were unconscionable, but to actually warn people away from them. So let me, let me read to you a little bit of um, the message that he sent to the faithful Great. Um, in the immediate follow or the days following these events. Okay, so the message to the faithful reads, quote, parents, if your children are Bolsheviks, demand with authority that they renounce their delusions, that they repent a great sin. And if they don't listen to you, renounce them. Wives, if your husbands are Bolsheviks and persist in serving Satan, Leave your husbands, save yourself and your children from the infection that destroys the soul. An Orthodox Christian cannot have communion with the servants of the devil. The Christ of Church calls you to defend the Orthodox faith. So in effect, this 
requisitioning of the monastery not only gets believers out into the streets protesting it, but it also forces on them a choice. Are they going to sit back and let the servants of Satan rule (laughs) unchecked, (laughs) or are they going to stand up and fight, even if this meant breaking up their own families Mm. and denouncing their husbands and their and their sons or their right children. and 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 of course at this particular moment of time Kalantai has a relationship with Debenka who brings some sailors and the sailors there's a fray and they start shooting and eventually a priest dies and it's in the aftermath of this that like the whole kind of situation of the church and state has to be dealt with right yeah can you talk a little bit yeah. about that yeah so it's fair to say that this confrontation that started in the monastery you know it's not something that Kalantai consciously provoked, but it definitely erupts very quickly, comes at a really bad time for the Bolsheviks. As I said, all these war veterans are coming back, which would seem to be a good thing, right? The war is finally coming to an end. But it also means that you have a lot of armed people coming back coming back home, not all of whom are, are convinced that the Bolsheviks are, are the ones who have the legitimate right to rule Russia or should rule Russia. Along with that, this is happening in the wake of the shutting down by Lenin of this long-awaited assembly called the Constituent Assembly, which was an elected assembly, the first fully elected assembly, right, by not only men, but women Mm. um, in the fall of 1917 that convened in the early days of January. And after, I think, 17 hours of debate, everybody went home and because Lenin didn't like the way that things were turning out, and this incl- I don't want to get into the weeds here too much, but he essentially wanted them to ratify a series of policies that the Bolsheviks had put forth in the fall. And when it looked like the vote wasn't going to go his way, he just locked the hall of the Constituent Assembly and said, you know what, this is a defunct institution because the elections took place Back in the fall, the political world, the political environment has moved on and they're no longer legitimate. It's no longer a legitimate body because the elections were, you know, are already out of date, essentially. So he says, instead, we're going to put this to a vote in the new Soviets Mm -hmm. that have been elected. So there's a little bit of background, but to say that that was also not a popular move for a lot of people. Not not quite as many people got upset in the in the immediate wake of that as they did say in the in the days of October, but it was a very very bold move on Lenin's part and there were all sorts of questions about legitimacy that were brought up even by people who had been very sympathetic to the Bolsheviks mm-hmm. like among some of the socialist revolutionaries for example right. and even some of the Mensheviks. So he had uh, the potential for a civil war on his hands already, right? You've got armed people coming back from the front. You've got this very big political unrest um, brewing. And so the last thing he needed was, you know, the representative of God on earth, the patriarch, to then suddenly anathematize the, the, the Bolsheviks and call the faithful to begin what is effectively the beginning of the counter-revolution. Mm. So... Very poor timing, which is why, to put it mildly, she did get a lot of grief from oh, her yeah. colleagues for oh, this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. She was gotten a lot of trouble. And in many ways, I think it precipitated the demise of her political career. Yeah. Within, I would not be surprised. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but I think that the thing that I've always had a hard time understanding is 
the role of the church as it relates to women, right? Because, you know, in a lot of the work that you do, the role of faith in Russian women's lives is really a kind of empowering thing. And Kalantai clearly doesn't see it that way. Now, maybe it's because that's just not her experience. She hasn't spent a lot of time among peasants, right? She's definitely been radicalized by urban women, right? She mm-hmm. was radicalized in Narva, looking at factory workers. And she doesn't really seem, she doesn't write a lot about the church. She doesn't write a lot about faith, but she clearly made a terrible mistake here. And she, she, you know, she admits it in her own autobiography. She says, okay, like this was, I got into trouble for this. Why? Why was it such a bad move on her part? What did she not understand about women in Russia at this time? Yeah, so one of the things she didn't understand is, as you said, that although there, there, the church definitely was a patriarchal institution, very much so, it was also uh, going through a period of reform at the time. And particularly after the February Revolution the previous year and the collapse of, of the czarist order, there had been a lot of opportunity within the church itself to talk about the role that women could play within the church. Not of course, as clergy, but looking for ways to include them, say, in reading scripture or tending to setting up, say, conversations around the faith and things like that. So there were new discussions about the role of women in church and a new acknowledgement that women as the faithful played a really important role in perpetuating the faith within their families. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, it's true that religious marriage, um, you know, saw marriage as a sacrament and didn't allow women to get out of bad marriages. But at the same time, when one could also argue the flip side of that, it didn't allow men to get out of marriages either. So they had (laughs) to continue to support their wives, even if they didn't really want to be married to them anymore. So that was a form of protection for women in a certain sense. But aside from that, there were also real opportunities within the faith as as mothers and as, as sort of the one responsible within the family structure for life cycle events, like, you know, not only births, but, ma- but marriages and, and in times of sickness and at death, right? The women were the ones who helped perpetuate the religious traditions that helped to organize meaning and community around loss. And that these were really important roles that they played within, in a family as the one who, you know, prayed for you. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, to, to sort of dismiss that as unimportant or to ignore it as important was to actually ignore a, a big portion of many women's identity within their families and to kind of demean them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it just didn't make sense for a lot of women, too, to be told suddenly that, you know, this role that they played was no longer necessary. Not only that, but it was a, a mark of backwardness and ignorance. It just mm-hmm. didn't compute for them. And I don't think if, you know, Someone like Colin Tai, who, who saw women's welfare in a very secular way, just did not appreciate that. Right. Yeah. I mean, she had, I think she, she was definitely interested in women's emancipation. She was definitely interested in creating these infant and child palaces and maternal, you know, supporting women as mothers. And yet at the same time, why couldn't they, I mean, you talked a little bit earlier when we were chatting about the red church, right? And the idea of a church that could be a more sort of like socially responsible institution, you know, and as commissar of social welfare, she, she had the responsibility of secularizing girls' education, for instance, taking it away from the church. Mm-hmm. 
being, you know, abolishing church marriage and creating opportunities for divorce. So on the one hand, I think she clearly thought that she was helping women. But as you sort of point out here, she was also kind of diminishing women or at least diminishing their faith. And why couldn't those two things have worked together? Well, so the interesting thing, as I said before, too, that the Orthodox worldview was kind of very binary and you were either for Christ or Antichrist, right? Same thing is true for Bolsheviks. They They were very quick to think that if you were with them, you were against them. And, you know, I think anybody committed to women's welfare, you know, would have been better off thinking, well, these are opportunities to support women, but we're not going to mandate that that they use these institutions or these these um, resources or that if they want to use them, they have to renounce, you know, could could you. and, And to be honest, in the end, what we what we end up seeing is that a woman will consult a doctor when she's giving birth or a midwife, someone who's trained, right? But they'll also pray, mm-hmm. right? It's never going to be just one or the other because for the most part, people are very pragmatic anyway and they want whatever resources they have available to ensure a positive outcome and whatever support they can get, they'll, they'll kind of take it. But I think the Bolsheviks also tended to be very dismissive of traditional practices like prayer as something that were important to people. And keeping in mind that this was a time of you know, years of of war and revolution, and now we're on the cusp of a civil war and with and then famine, and people are going to need those traditional resources just to get from day to day. Right. Um, and the state, the Bolshevik state, is never going to have the budget that it needs to be able to create the institutions that are going to make up for, you know, to be able to provide people with what they need with or without prayer. So trusting that this Bolshevik state is going to, you know, take away their God and give them all, you know, salvation in another form is who's going to do that. It's just not, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Right. Right. And yeah, I mean, the, the one thing, the other thing that we talked briefly about is that very soon after these events, there is the formal separation of church and state. What yeah. does that actually mean in the yeah. in this context? Well, so they were also uh, granted freedom of conscience. Okay. So at the same time. So what it actually meant for a lot of people is that religion was going to be increasingly privatized. So no, no secular, no institution could well, let's take education as an example, okay. right? You're going to fully, any school is going to be fully secularized now. Mm-hmm. Religious schools are no longer going to be, you know, allowed and, and supported by the state uh, in any way. It doesn't, a lot of people feared it meant that you would not be able to teach your children religious prayers or right. about the Bible or scripture or whatever. It didn't mean that. It just meant that in the public sphere, everything was going to be fully secularized. Right. That the state was no longer going to give money to the church, right. which is what had been the case before. Right. And, and yeah, and this is, they're still working this out. What is this actually going to mean in practice? But it was pushing back on a long tradition under the czar of the state fully, the the uh, church and state being fully in sync, mm-hmm. right? So even on the battlefield, for example, right, the the troops have clergy who go out and pray with them before every battle, and you know it's it's seen as 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 part of being Russian. Mm-hmm. You actually had to be Orthodox to be to be Russian. I mean, this was a a legal requirement. So this, the Bolsheviks are, are separating church and state for that very reason. Right. They're, they're free. They see it as a liberation, as a kind of emancipation of, of people from 
the purview of the church. Right. And I mean, Lenin probably was planning to do this, but this action of Kalantai at the Nevsky Monastery sort of precipitates maybe this happening a little bit faster than well, you might have wanted. Well, it certainly raises the alarm of the faithful very quickly, and that forces the Bolsheviks' hand. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and there are many more demonstrations throughout the spring, and things intensify in August of that year. There are more clerical executions, but the Bolsheviks are going to finally realize that this is not an easy battle to win, and so they're going to back off at certain points in time and then wait until they have another opportunity to go after the church again. The next big opportunity will be in the context of famine mm-hmm. um, in 21-22 when they go uh, into churches and requisition a lot of the church's wealth with the, and this is very much the Kolontai argument, so that they can effectively turn that wealth into resources for the starving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the idea of Attacking a moral authority from the position of a, a great moral need in the country, yeah. basically. Yeah. 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 Well, this has been great. And I think this is definitely one of Kalantai's less successful endeavors. Yeah. Clearly. She does definitely had bad timing. Very bad timing yeah. on this one in particular. Yeah. Her yeah. views were not out of sync with other Bolsheviks. It was just a matter of. Of the time. And the fact that the sort of situation kind of got out of hand and somebody, a priest was killed and then it really alarmed people and sort of created this yeah. bad timing situation. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, in the last minute, do you, I know you've got a book coming out later this year, mm-hmm. um, which talks a little bit about this period. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, sure. Really quickly. I mean, it's it's partly an orthodox story, but I look at the life and legacy of a a very interesting guy by the name of Ivan Churikov, who was known as Brother Iwan, who was a, a kind of lay spiritual leader in the beginning in the 1890s and until the 1930s when he died in a Soviet prison. But what I like about his story is the, the way in which he was able to address the needs of a lot of working class people, Many of whom struggled not only from a lot of illnesses and poverty, but also from alcoholism mm-hmm. or drinking problems. And he was able to sober people up and to heal them. So he was a, both a preacher and a healer who was extraordinarily popular in his day. At the time that we're talking about right now in the city of, uh, well, it was called Petrograd in 1918. Um, right. Petrograd, today St. Petersburg. He had a, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 followers. Wow. And yet he has not, a very few people outside of Russia have ever heard of him. And But certainly at the time he was very well known, so much so that he got the attention of the Soviet government and was eventually um, shut down and arrested. Mm-hmm. And as I said, died in a prison. But my book takes on his sort of reconstructs his story and the community that his followers founded, which survived not only his lifetime, but into the Soviet period. So the book traces their story through the Soviet period, and they continue to exist today as a group of believers. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. And it teases out their relationship, which was very fraught with the Orthodox Church um, depending on exactly what period of time you're looking at. So, okay. And what's it called? Um, it's called Holy Sobriety, which was the name <laughs> of his, uh, um, uh, a faith healer and, you know, yeah. his followers. Great. So, tell Great. Us. And when is it out? Um, August. This August. Year, August. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, August well, 15th. August 15th. With, Perfect. With Northern Illinois Cornell Press. 
Great. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for agreeing to chat. Thank you. It was fun. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you as always to everyone out there so much for listening and keep up the good fight.